Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit, the newest and most reliable state-of-the-art time-traveling transportation service, is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Odyssey. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 8 of the podcast. My guest this week is Dr. Radcliffe Edmonds, the Paul Shorey Professor of Greek and Chair of the Department of Classics at Bryn Mawr College. His research interests focus on Greek social and intellectual history, with a particular focus on mythology, magic, and religion. He has published on Greek imaginings of death in the afterlife and on the discourse of magic in the ancient world. As lovers of stories and mythology, we settled into a wonderful, long discussion about how to create a good story and the nature of world building, about Herodotus and the separation between storyteller and historian. This episode is the longest I've ever recorded to date, unintentionally, of course, but when you put two literary nerds together for a great discussion, time kind of ceases to exist. I hope you'll forgive us and bear with us, though, because our conversation was nothing less than sensational and educational. So take care, enjoy the episode, and I'll speak to you all next time. So it's really exciting to have you join me today. Thank you so much for agreeing to appear on the podcast. Well, I love to talk about mythology and and classics and such things, so Podcasts are not really a familiar genre for me, but uh, this seemed like fun. So, And I learned because I only got into podcasting in, I think the idea was brought up to me in August by, by a friend of mine. Um, I wouldn't call myself an avid podcast listener by any means. I, I listened to like two. So I was like, oh yeah, I kind of know what they do. But the ones I listened to were so vastly different ones, like comedy. The other one is just like social justice issues. So mm-hmm. I'd never listened to a history one. I was like, I don't know the first thing about it. I don't know how to conduct it. Um, and then I just started doing research and it kind of was like, oh, it's an anything goes. If you have a good idea that people would find interesting, you can literally make it whatever you want as long as no one's done it before. So I was like, oh, okay. So then I just developed the idea with a friend. We did some research, made sure no one had the same kind of thing. And then I was like, great, let's do it. Let's just talk about history mythology. Right. Well, and as you know, as you know, from classics, right? I mean, even if somebody's done it before and somebody's done something like it before, nobody has done what you're doing. So it's going to be different anyway. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, so super, super exciting. And it's fun because I like to give, I thought, you know, it'd be a great idea to give scholars a platform to, like outside of the field where, yeah, um, okay, maybe your colleagues will be very familiar with your publications and what you're doing. Uh, but for a broader audience, no. I mean, I ask yeah. most people about some of my favorite scholars and they're like, who now? I, I, most people they've heard of maybe you know, Professor Beard. Oh yeah, I know Mary Beard. She's that chick who was on TV. I was like, right. yeah, do you know anything about her? No, not really. No, not really. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's usually and the Most response. of us go through our careers in, in, in obscurity and, and often prefer it that way, but, but there's reasons to reach out and to sort of say, well, actually we've got a lot of good stuff here that people don't know about. Um, 100%. I mean, great life lessons, great. I mean, I don't want to get too bogged down in the, the serious stuff early, but I mean, inevitably on the podcast, people end up talking about morality um, and very, very weighty topics. Politics, no doubt. Um, of course, very political uh, in nature, just just by virtue of yeah. that's well, what influences and, us. You know, and and that's another thing that reading the you know the text from classical antiquity give us a perspective on right this is not the first time we've seen things like what is going on in our you know and um it and you know even the 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 combination of political unrest and and uh and pandemic Right, I was teaching a Greek history class this fall, and we're reading Thucydides' description of the plague in Athens, right? And he was like, this is cutting a little close to home because the effects of the plague are magnifying the partisan politics that are going on in Athens and party you know, politics begin to mean more than family ties or morality or you know, friendship or anything. You're like, yeah. Um, <laughs> It definitely hand, it's good to know that people have done gone through this before and come out the other side. But on the other hand, it also gives us a, a taste of the kind of things that can happen. So, yeah, I mean, it's so hard to just I mean, maybe for me and other people who are clued into classics, may, maybe we're just super hyper aware of it because we've read this stuff. We've read a lot of things that tell us we've seen this before, we can make it through, we just have to do X, Y, and Z. And then a lot of people who just kind of aren't aware, they're like, oh no, this is the end of the world. What do we do? I've never seen, and I'm like, we will make it. Now the state of what the world will look like after we make it, right. that's it gonna bad, be the, but, you know. But it's not the end of the world actually. Yeah. Right. And it's really hard to sell people on that, I've found, because a lot of my super liberal friends who I love very much, they're like the, oh, my God. OK, well, what happened at the Capitol? What happened? Blah, blah, blah. Oh, it, this is it. We're, we're done. And I'm like, mm, I wouldn't say we're done. We're just different we've got years of agony to go through before we're done come on now <laughs> if we look at the end of the roman republic that took years and decades and you know so yeah that's sort of reassuring um but <laughs> just just a little bit i mean I, that's one of my favorite jokes i mean when people want to talk about we're we were supposed to be the next rome and this is our fall and and then i usually kind of you know smile at them and go well if you're judging us by Roman standards, which fall, like, mm -hmm. 
which one? I mean, I'm sorry. There wasn't just one fall of Rome. There were multiple. So are you kind of saying this is one of the falls and then we'll rebuild and then maybe later we'll fall again? I'm not sure. Um, and then no one really knows how to elaborate. And then they just go, oh, um, the first oh, one. It's more complicated than that? Oh, no. Yes. I mean, <laughs> but this is what history is good for, right? Is, is, to, is to give that perspective. Say, yes, it's complicated. But yes, actually, we see recurring patterns. And again, that's what stories are good for too, right? Is to say, yes, it's complicated, but here's some patterns, right? And, and so um, that's why we tell stories. Exactly. Um, so I, I love where this is going. I can tell for the middle part, it's gonna bode really well, but I wanna rewind really quickly uh, to just, a, a, going into a little bit about who you are. So how did you first develop your love of ancient history? How did you sort of fall into classics? How did you figure out it was like a thing? Um, well, it was sort of accidental in some ways. I mean, um, like so many, I loved Greek myth when I was was a kid. Um, and for me, it was it was accentuated because my mother is a storyteller. Um, and so, I mean, she was a, an, a preschool and elementary teacher, but she was also a professional storyteller. So when she told stories, it was really good. Um, and so I, you know, I fell in love with the Greek myths. I read all sorts of mythology. Um, you know, I, I read the Dolaire's mythology. That was sort of my formative one, as so many for my generation and before. Um, but I also... Um, because my mother actually one of her specialties was in Japanese and Chinese myths um, and stories. Um, I grew up with an awareness that there were a lot of different kinds of stories. Um, and that was exciting. Um, and then, you know, I, I took Latin in high school and that was fun. And I took French in high school and that was fun. But then I got to college and um, in the first week of classes, um, uh, there was a professor who stood up in the lecture on sort of the, it was a, you know, survey course on, on literature and started out, and I was like, ah, oh, this is so cool. This is so great. Um, and I took Greek with him the next semester and, you know, picked up my Latin and, and got really excited about, about that. So that sort of helped me bring together this lifelong love of stories and storytelling with the deeper delve into the cultures and the backgrounds that the languages could give me. Um, you know, I, I, I sometimes joke that I was raised by a storyteller and an econometrician because my father was a, a professor of, of econometrics. So I also grew up with a tendency to analyze everything. Um, and so really that's how I've ended up approaching mythology is in an analytic way. Um, as much as I love the stories and the, the beauty of the stories and the fun of the stories, it, it also, taking the stories apart, seeing how they work, seeing how those patterns recur, how they vary, what the, you know, what the pieces are, that has always, that's always excited me as well. So, um, I, I mean, I guess that's sort of how I, how I got into it, um, 
in that way. And you know, I went off to graduate school to, um, and I went to Chicago because that was a place where I could do interdisciplinary things, where I could combine an interest in, in classical literature and ancient religions and philosophy and all of these sort of different pieces and bring it together. Um, and I had a ball because I was like, it's like being a kid in a candy shop. I want, I want some of this, and some of this, and some of this, and some of this, and, you know. Um, and I, I still feel that way. I still feel like, you know, there's so much more that I haven't had time to uh, explore deeply enough. So. Yeah, I think, oh, I don't remember who it was, but I heard a great uh, sort of phrase to describe ancient historians, classicists, anyone else in the uh, ancient studies the other day. It was, we are sort of the, the kids who weren't forced to grow up you just start read more, reading more books and then you do, you are encouraged to publish them so other people can enjoy, but you can still be that kid who gets to read a ton of books and yeah. study just fun things. Right. I mean, and I, I love what I'm studying and I'm, I, I frequently am like, they pay me for this. This is great. Um, and I mean, fortunately, I also like writing, right? Um, and so, you know, I, I do enjoy sharing the the things I found. This is also something my mother tells me I, I did as a small child. I was like, listen to all of the stories I found. And you know, I would recite the whole. Um, you know, I've never quite grown out of that, I think. But um uh but but yeah, I mean and and I but I also enjoy now bringing the analytic component to it. And saying, look what you can see if you take apart this story and you you sort of, you can see, look how the clever thing that this just this little twist here and this little bit here does. Um, so that's, I, I love sharing that. Um, so that's, that's why I love teaching. Um, I mean, I'm sure the fact that I grew up as the child of two teachers helped with that. Um, but neither of them did classics or anything remotely like it um so um yeah and i'm also just curious so because you are such an expert now on ancient religion and sort of myth magic and that whole the the, the, the more weird the, the fun, weird yeah. stuff the fun yeah. stuff though the stuff that everyone i don't think i, I have so many friends who know the magic and religion part but they don't tend to think beyond just the basic mythology of it because they say, oh, well, isn't it all magical? Um, so for my listeners and friends who may not understand, like, well, how is it really separate? Like, how can you actually separate magic and, and myth? Because isn't it all just one? What would you say to that? Well, it's actually a very tricky question. And it was, in, in some ways, that's been the, was the focus of the book that I did re most recently, Drawing Down the Moon, which actually grew out of the class that I've been teaching at Bryn Mawr for, gosh, nearly 20 years now. Um, and like, how do you tell what the difference is, right? Um, and the deeper you dig, the more complicated it gets. Um, I would say my basic definition, magic is extraordinary. That is to say it's non-normative. But what is normal 
depends on who you are and how you're looking at things. And so for 20th century people looking back at a polytheistic religion, it all seems pretty weird, right? They've got all of these different gods. That's not normal. You should have one God. Everybody knows that's the way it goes, right? So that's why that elision it's between mythology and magic is so easy for the contemporary audience. It, it, it just seems so weird. But when you look back at the ancient stuff, you can see that they also made a distinction between what is really weird for them and what was perfectly normal for them. So perfectly normal for them was going out to a temple, taking a pig, cutting its throat, spilling the blood on the ground, barbecuing it up, right? I mean, that was perfectly normal, right? No, totally normal. That would be very weird for us nowadays. We don't, we don't do that sort of thing, at least not, not on a normal basis. Um, on the other hand, right, if you take a bat and tear its eyes out and write strange characters on its wings and then let it go, that was, that seems weird to us, but it also seemed weird to them, right? And so, right, there's, there's that, you know, that, that extraordinary is the word I like to use for it with a, and I sort of emphasize the hyphen in between extra and ordinary because it's outside of what's ordinary. Um, and so magic is where, you know, for Greek and Roman religion, and it, I think it applies in other circumstances, other culture, cultural contexts as well, it's where you go outside the normal. Um, and often that is a label pointing to what those weird, strange other people do, but sometimes it's something you do yourself. Because there are times in life when you have a problem and the normal solutions don't seem to be working. And so that's when you turn to magic because you need an extraordinary solution. Um, and so we get, I mean, and, and the evidence from Greco-Roman antiquity is, is particularly good in this regard because we get not just fabulous literary representations and not just accusations of that's what those other people do, but actually people who are saying, I'm doing this myself because I think I need to do this. Um, and so that, that gives us a whole class of evidence of people self-labeling themselves as doing magic. Um, you know, it's not always pretty evidence. Um, because when you're desperate, some of the things that people are doing are pretty horrible. But, you know, it, it, it gives us insight into how people are thinking, what they're worried about. Yeah. So. Yeah. So it's, you did warn me that it's very complicated. So I didn't expect <laughs> you to boil it down to just. Yes, this is it. This is one, this is the other, this is them together, boom. Done. I boiled it down to 450 pages, but um, <laughs> there's still a lot to be done, yeah. Um, but a very readable 450 pages, very very readable, very easy. Well, I don't know about that, we'll see, we'll see but. Uh, um, well, well, I appreciate the attempt though. Um, 
because otherwise uh, I'd have to go and find these voluminous texts describing just one or just the other. And then I'm sure it would be a lot more complicated. And um, most people yeah. who aren't in the field probably aren't going to be going and finding very dry manuscripts that describe things. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's some of some of the some of the evidence is kind of fun. Some of the scholarship has been less fun, um, but um, I mean, and also, you know, as you look back at the scholarship, and this this is something that holds true with myth as well. You begin, especially if you're looking back at stuff that's 50, 100, 200 years old, you begin to see the, the prejudices. You begin to see the biases that are involved in that, you know, magic is the, the abnormal stuff and it's done by the abnormal people. And so that you can see the way that people are categorized and labeled and sort of, um, you know, that, you know, claims like the Greeks and Romans didn't have any real religion, right? They just had these sort of superstitious or magical practices because they had not yet been sort of given the illumination of true religion. You know, like, well, that's not how they thought about it, right? They're, so um, that's when you start digging into the scholarship, some of those prejudices still sort of linger under the surface, even in contemporary discourse. And I think it's worth calling attention to those things. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm all for more people going into it. And that really just sparked a question all of a sudden um, as you were talking about it. Uh, because it is such a complex issue, but it's a really, it can be really fun to also delve into, not just boring manuscripts that <laughs> people would fall asleep with. Um, when you were younger in, in college then, um, okay, so you had an idea. You you said, I like stories. I want to go, I want to learn myth. I'm enraptured by the languages. Um, I think for most people, the languages are uh, the the first thing they'd come across just because they are they clearly stand out they're very different when mm -hmm. I was um, in like my basic mythology 101 course uh, the first semester a few professors would come in at the start and make an announcement and say hey just want to let you know uh, we're offering this class and this class and um, so I was made aware that ancient Greek was an actual class that you could take uh, at Mizzou where I went to school uh, by later one of my favorite professors coming in and uh just saying you should take this class it's really cool it'll let you do things like this proceeds to recite the first five lines of the iliad in ancient greek and then everyone in the class was oh yeah. my gosh that's the coolest thing ever Worst um yeah. and and then gets us to come and say how do i take this language or how, you know what department are you from um but once you find yourself in a classics department uh sometimes i find people are very hampered by the lack of accessibility to the subjects that draw them in the most so um for me i guess i didn't really have an idea i just knew i like classics so i was very willing to just sort of take what was provided based on the expertise of the professors who were in the department um, but since 
magic and religion are very specific. Were you lucky? Did you have a mentor or a favorite professor who taught that as their specialty? Or did you, were you forced to kind of, okay, well, no one's teaching that. So I'm just going to take all the classes that get me closest. And then in grad school, I'll find somebody who I can study with. I mean, it was it was sort of in between there. I I, I did have a a, a fabulous mentor, um, Heinrich von Staden, um, who, who his specialty was actually ancient medicine, um, but he also was interested in the intersections of religion and and magic and and medicine, and so and also actually some of the the weirder corners of mythology. Um, I, I am forever indebted to him because he was the first person to, to give me Zosimus of Panopolis, that well-known household name. Um, uh, it, 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 you know, he's a fourth century Greco-Egyptian alchemist. Weird stuff, fabulous stuff. Um, and it was, it was in his classes that I got a taste of some of these things. And so when I went to graduate school, I was looking for places where I could do that. And so I went to University of Chicago where I could work with Chris Ferroni and where I could work with um, Hans Dieter Betz who was the editor of the Greek Magical Papyri and translation collection. I could work with Jay-Z Smith who did all of these interesting things in ancient religion. And you know, I could have my mind blown open with all of these, these kind of opportunities. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a combination of that. I, I had been interested because I liked stories, right, in, in ideas of magic and, and mythology throughout. Um, and, uh, you know, J.R. Tolkien, formative influence in my life, right, you know, sort of. Um, so being able to you know, being able to look at um, the, the Greek and Roman cultures that I was studying and think, oh, hey, you know, how do these things work? How does, how does the mythology work? How does the religion work? How does the, you know, um, and because as, as a, you know, as a high schooler, I was obsessed with Tolkien and read all of the, you know, all of the, all of the back stuff. Um, I saw the way that he worked out his own mythology, his own languages, his own, you know, his own ideas of magic and how those things worked, right? So I got interested in sort of how does that, how does that play out in a real society or in somebody's creation like Percy Jackson or, you know, Harry Potter or, you know, Ursula Le Guin or whoever, whoever it happens to be. Yeah, I I mean, I grew up uh, with Harry Potter sort of being my uh, formative experience encountering magic, certainly. Uh, maybe it's, it's definitely not the first one with mythology, but certainly with magic. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the common theme with all of them was just okay, this, there's this really intense world building, myth building, language building. Um, I would say more for the mythology mythological aspect i mean percy jackson still came out when i was about eighth grade seventh or eighth grade maybe so so early but also kind of late uh i would say the aragon series really because i was just so enraptured with i loved anything dragons and any anyone who knew me growing up would say oh she was the the, like dragon girl obsessed with she wanted to just go into that 
realm and be a dragon rider. Um, but I saw how it, it it's very kind of like Lord of the Rings, I found. Um, just because you the know, Aragorn series and one I, I never I never I never read actually. Um for, and I don't know why I sort of missed it, I think sort of temporarily, but um I, because I was also obsessed with dragons and you know all of those things. I mean, I read the Anne McCaffrey ones, which you know um had their ups and downs, but um I, but if you like dragons dragons yeah i and it's really interesting how many people i talk to both in the field and outside of it who we we may like a lot of the same things but then we just crisscross and i'll have friends say oh did you love dragons did you read this series and i'll say no i didn't know it existed so who knows how people fall into you know what what not and there are a lot of i mean there are a lot of literature out there right that that is playing with these pieces and again it's like mythology right there's so many different stories and there's so many stories told in different ways that that, that sort of comes you can't get them all but you get you know you get the good ones or most you get the good them. ones and yeah. and what i love most is it draws upon a lot of the mythology we already know, Greco-Roman ones, certainly a little less on the uh, Egyptian side. But one thing that really surprised me early, um, because I'd always had an affinity for Greco-Roman myths, was when I read the Aragon series, um, yes, he has elves. Yes, he has dwarves. Both of them in both of the languages he created in this extensive mythology of this world draws very, very heavily on old Norse myth and Mm -hmm. i mean half the names in the book are just straight up that's an old norse word uh and so that shocked me because i was like i never thought i would enjoy old norse things that's just not something i gravitated to as a child but i i had not just the the dolaire's greek and roman myths but that that same pair of of author and illustrator also did a norse myths which was fabulous. I mean, it was again. It was this sort. Of, it was the same kind of. I don't know if are you were you familiar with the Greek, the Dolaire's Greek myths? Um, yes, there was a know, book the, in the library. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and and they had. I mean, they had these wonderful illustrations and and nicely simplified stories, which, as I learned later, cut out most of the sex and violence. But you know, it, um, appropriate for the age group. But I, but I, I got to know the Norse myths early on because of that, and so when I went to Tolkien, who was an old Norse scholar, um, I was like, look, yeah, look at there's all of these, you know, connections, ding, 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 and for him it was very deliberate the way he, you know, he worked those in. I, I don't know. Um, Paolini, right, was the guy who did Aragon, and I, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure he was to some extent as everybody was following Tolkien in, in some of those things. But it is nice to have a coherent story world, right? That you can draw things from. Um, actually, when I teach my advanced seminar on interpreting mythology, one of the things I have my students read is Tolkien's essay on fairy stories in which he talks about the way that stories create a secondary world that is coherent in and of itself and has its own sort of um, laws that work within, by analogy with our, with our own familiar ones. 
um, it's a it's a brilliant it's a brilliant essay and a, a brilliant sort of reflection on the art of storytelling, but also the art of adaptation of traditional stories. Um, and he sort of talks about tradition as a big stew, where lots of things get added into the pot, and any particular telling of a story is like a ladle full of soup. You get some little bits there and you get the things that have sort of melded in over the years and each one has its own set of particular characteristics. Um, and then there's always just like one, at least to me, that just sticks out because it just is so different from anything that could even just possibly be thrown into our wonderful stew of recurring themes that you can kind of go to when you want to create something new. Um, I studied abroad for a summer in Galway, Ireland, where mm. I was lucky enough to take an Irish history mythology course. Uh, and then I remember reading some of these old Gaelic myths. And one of them was about this, this queen. I Oh no, anyone who knew me is going to be very disappointed that I forgot Isn't half F? the names. But oh, maybe that was it. The, the, I the I remember it the Irish it was... is, that, that, is that the spelling always hurts my head because yeah. it's it's like M E D B H or something like that and it's apparently pronounced Mev. Um Yeah. So... Yeah, I mean I took like an Irish language course and it just was bonkers because I was like, so you don't pronounce half the letters or these two? When they taught me... Rules, but yeah, um, yeah, it's not something I've ever mastered. Um... Yeah, I mean, no, for sure there are rules because I remember being told by my Irish teacher there are rules, but I just remember some of the letter combinations. It helps because I, I'm very familiar with a lot of modern Irish names spelled the original way. So I can say, oh, oh I, I see this name. It's pronounced this way. Um, don't ask me why or how it is, uh, but I just remember That's things like right, um. <laughs> right. I just remember things like they would say, okay, the M and the H together is a V sound, a V, and I was like, you tell me how that makes a V, but okay, I'll sure it makes a V. So yeah, it, it must have been that because I just remember the the most striking part of that myth was that death by cheese and i remember i i wrote an essay and i literally named it death by death cheese by something something because it was so ridiculous it was like some dude was competing for the beautiful queen and to eliminate his rival he has a slingshot for whatever reason he doesn't have any other weapons but he has a slingshot he's out in the forest he sees his rival and to eliminate his rival, he only has some cheese on him, I suppose, that he was going to eat. So he puts a small piece of cheese, if you can imagine, in a slingshot. And he somehow is able to sling it, hit his rival square in the forehead, and his rival dies. Just hit by cheese. Wow. Death by cheese. That's, yeah, that is, that's an unusual one. I mean, I suppose if you think of a nice hard lump of Parmesan or something, right? I mean, but yeah, no, I mean, and, but, but this is, but this is also something about these stories, right? Is it's these memorable details that catch you, mm -hmm. right? The, the patterns may recur, right? The two rivals going for the, you know, trying to win the beautiful queen. Heard that one before. And again and again and again. Death by cheese, that's new. 
that's different, right? That's memorable. And therefore you have a new story, right? And that, that, that story gets retold rather than one where he picks up a stone from the riverbank and flacks his rival because that's just not as interesting. Right. Uh, I mean, then it's just your basic, oh, okay. Just another dude killing someone. Another guy bumping off another guy to win another girl, right? It's like, okay. But Death by Cheese, right, gets... And I mean, and this is what I mean about analyzing, why analyzing mythology is fun, is because you get to focus in on what are those little pieces that make this story different from the others? And what's the impact of those, right? One of the most important impacts you can ever have is memorability. You remember that story. You don't remember the names of the people involved. You don't remember exactly right what, but you remember the story because of the cheese. And when you start taking apart the myths, you find those little bits, right? That stick in the mind that, you know, hold on, you know, and the very self-conscious tellers of myth throughout the ages have worked with those. Um, I mean, I, 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 one of the, the, my, one of my favorite authors from classical antiquity is, is Plato. Um, and people don't think about him as a myth teller, but he was a brilliant myth teller. Um, and it is, you know, it, one of the reasons that he's so good is because he has an incredible gift for creating these memorable images, for creating these memorable little bits of story where he works familiar patterns together and then creates some incredibly memorable images like burning rivers of fire in the underworld with you know, with the, you know, the, 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 the souls of those who have wronged others, you know, wailing in torment. They're like, wow, that's had a long, you know, sort of afterlife, but right. We, we don't find that in other sources really before Plato, he probably didn't invent it, but he crystallized it in a way that's memorable. Of course, his biggest triumph is Atlantis, which he invented. Um, but it's such a great story, right? <laughs> that it gets picked up again and again and again and refashioned and reworked in so many different ways. Oh, for sure. One hundred percent. I mean, gosh, I mean, Atlantis is used in everything these days. Oh, remember oh, i wish atlantis was real remember when earth was a paradise look to Atlantis. i mean they shove it in all the weird corners that you would never expect to see it i think as a as a young child growing up i was really into Yu-Gi-Oh, both the show mm-hmm. and the card game and then i remember i got i was watching it and then at some point someone's like atlantis and now we have atlantis and we're gonna go and you know, revive like, the city. <laughs> and i was like what in a card game why but so yes, it, it definitely pops up in all the 
interesting places. But I mean, and, and this is a great crossroad right here where, you know, we're talking a lot about mythologies, a lot about folklore and all these things, uh, whether it's Death by Cheese or the other great adventures of Ku uh, Cullen, the big mm-hmm. Irish hero that I learned a lot about on that study abroad. But also now bringing into the, the, the historical aspect where kind of the lines are blurred between history and mythology. Uh, my favorite person to ask about is uh, Herodotus, uh, because everyone has a very distinct uh, opinion on him, if you're familiar with him, I would say. Um, would you consider him more historian or more uh, bardy, like just mythology creator? Because, I mean, I know he bills himself as the historian, but I mean... With, with him, you know, go to any source who says you have a good story, no matter how fantastical. Oh, great. I'm going to write it in my book here. Yeah. I mean, Herodotus was a storyteller, right? I mean, and, and you know, it, I, I was just teaching Herodotus in Greek this, this semester. I love Herodotus. He's so much fun um, because he tells great stories. But, right, the way he brings them together is for what he calls a historiae. That is an inquiry, right? His stories are aimed at, right? Ultimately, there's a question is, how did this whole war come about? And this war was a real event and it involved people he knew or, you know, in generation, right? A couple of generations ago and continuing onward, right? The, The ramifications of it were still playing out. So, I mean, he's he's a storyteller, but um, he's not just recounting a myth because he's explicitly framing it for the purpose of an inquiry. Now, some of the connections are a little hard to grasp, like when he goes off on a tangent on how spices are collected in Arabia and talks about flying snakes and and you know fun things like that. But but even that. Right, he's creating a picture of the world as he sees it, right? And how the events that he and the communities he's part of have experienced in the past couple of generations fit into that world. And that is mythological in a sense, right? Because every myth is also creating that kind of model of a world. Um, one of the, I, I, I really like Christian Servino Inwood's formulation of the way myth works um, in, in that it creates models of and models for the world. That is, it creates a model of the world in a representation, but it also creates a model for how you're supposed to act within it. And very often, how you're not supposed to act within it, right? And what happens if you, you know, kill your father and marry your mother or something like that, um, right? For, just for example, right? Um, so, um, you know, that's Herodotus, he treads the borders there because he is picking up on the mythological traditions that he's that are part of his culture, but he's using them in a somewhat different way, more like his contemporary medical writers, really, who are saying, okay, well, we've got these symptoms of a disease. How do we figure out 
who gets these kind of things and how it works and what's the course of it and where did it come from and you know what happens with it right and that whole set of questions and trying to break down cause and effect like that Herodotus is doing a similar kind of thing which is why he's sort of in between there Thucydides who I was also teaching this semester um has it, I mean he's not He's, he's only a little bit later in time, but he's got a different agenda, right? He's telling a story, but in a very different way and for different kinds of purposes. Um, so. So I tend to describe Herodotus as everyone, he's like everyone's favorite crazy uncle who you never quite know whether he's telling you just completely fantastical things or there's a kernel of truth but hey he's just trying to make it a little more interesting um mm -hmm. you know is that a fair assessment though or should i give him a little I, I more than it, just I, I think he i think he deserves a bit more credit than that he's actually a very careful storyteller um and he when when the story is uncertain he he flags that Right. He says, we don't really know about this, but I've heard this or I've heard that. And then there are other stories that he tells. He's like this, I'm sure of. Now, from our perspective, his judgment doesn't seem necessarily all that good. Right. I mean, the famous example is the is where does the Nile come from? And he gives it. He, he says, I've heard these three different stories. And, you know, I think this is the correct one. And one of the ones he dismisses is the idea that there could be a river, that the source of the river is somewhere farther down south. He's like, no, 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 it gets too hot there. The river couldn't start there, right? So from our perspective, we're like, okay, you're just wrong. What's interesting is watching how he makes his reasoning for what, you know, what stories, what story is plausible, what story is not plausible. Um, and we have to realize there's a big gap between what we find plausible and what he finds plausible. But once you sort of get into his world a little bit more, he has, he has some very interesting criteria. Um, and one of the things that is plausible in his world is that the gods are real and that they interfere. And, you know, so he thinks that that's a very reasonable way of understanding what goes on. And so some of the stories he tells take that as this is plausible because that's the kind of thing the gods do. This is not plausible because that's not the kind of thing the gods do. Right. And so, yeah. Um, so I guess then from your perspective as the expert here, because uh, clearly I'm not, um, so how would you describe him? If, if someone were to come up to you and say, I have no background in mythology, I have no background in classics. Hey, someone told me I should look in and read some Herodotus. Who is this guy? So how would you describe him then? Um, I would say he's a storyteller, right? And he is, he is also our best source for the historical events of a certain period. And sometimes he's our only source, right? Which means that we have, because he's 
first and foremost, a storyteller, we have to be careful how we evaluate everything he tells us. So that's how I would, that's how I would, I would frame him. I'd say, a lot of fun to read. Be, you know, be a little cautious. So, um, so take it with a grain of salt. Take it with a grain of salt. Um, figure out why he's telling you this story. But then again, I think that's a lesson that applies to everybody, right? Thucydides pretends to be completely objective, but he's not. He's got a massive ax to grind. Why is he telling us the story that he's telling us when he's telling it and how he's telling it, right? And those questions, I mean, for me, this is how mythology has to be approached. Who's telling the story? Who's retelling the story? How are they retelling it? And why are they telling it that way instead of this other way? And what's the effect of that, right? Sometimes it's purely an aesthetic thing cheese, right? Boom. It's memorable. It sticks in the mind. It's worth it just for that. Sometimes there's another perspective in there. There's another aspect to why some element is there instead of another. Um, mm -hmm. So, okay. I don't want to get too much into this because I have so many other things I do want to ask about and get to. So I'll, I'm going to spend a grand total of maybe 10 seconds on this. Um, are you, have you followed or are you aware of the Assassin's Creed uh, game that they did based in ancient Greece? I am aware of it. I, 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 I don't play it. Um, and so um, I've seen it. Um, some of my colleagues uh, um, have, have, they set up a, a game night for some of the students where they had Assassin's Creed Odyssey on a big screen and um, it, it looked beautifully done and, and all of that. So, Okay, just because in case you were or weren't familiar, they do include a character who is, for all intents and purposes, Herodotus, uh -huh. uh, who, who goes with the main playable character. Uh, and so obviously the game has its own background mythology that it has to stick to if it wants to be halfway credible as a game in the series. Um, but it does tie with the more fantastical elements built into the mythology that's not more historical. So uh, I found it interesting that they have Herodotus kind of trying to chronicle the heroic deeds, supernatural deeds of the main character. So um I just find it interesting how, okay, well, that makes him seem like if he's recording these things, is that quite accurate? Because he sort of did that in real life, reported on things where he thought, hey, this this is true or somewhat true. So um, I just yeah, I mean, I, I mean, because he's coming out of a mythological tradition that this is the way that you record things, right? You put them into these kind of stories. And it's interesting, for example, to contrast the way Herodotus recounts the Battle of Plataea in the Persian War and the poet Simonides and a, a fragment of his lost poem on the Battle of Plataea was, was discovered a, a few years back. Um, and um, Simonides really makes it Homeric, right? Talks about the, the Castor and Pollux marching alongside the Spartans as they're going along, right? Herodotus by contrast looks very historical right? But yet he's also heroizing in certain ways, right? They're, they're picking up the available story patterns from their culture and using them. And if we think about it, that's how, I mean, it still works that way. 
as we cast narratives of of our of our own history and events, right? We put them into story patterns because that simplifies them, that makes them recognizable, that makes them memorable, and it helps us get the point across. Um, and you know, it's interesting to see as the stories get turned around, right? What the pivot points are where you can take a story, you twist one detail and it turns out in the opposite direction. Um, yeah, I mean, I I just, I thought it, it, it was a short sort of um, realization that I was just kind of like, oh, this is kind of brilliant. I mean, you, you wanna teach people who Herodotus is, He's uh -huh. I, whether he's central to kind of the narrative or not, that's debatable, but you know, he was a historical character. And if you're gonna teach people kind of what he did, I. I would say for the most part, it's pretty. Yeah, chronicling the heroic, the, the great. He says, I'm doing this so that the great deeds that were done don't get lost by time, mm -hmm. which is, again, what both history and myth do, right? Is they, they, stories preserve things over time as they're told and retold and retold. Yeah, it's just a brilliant little, I don't know cracker for us i guess who who, who love that stuff yeah uh, but so okay well that was the the 20 seconds i always kind of give to anyone who's maybe familiar with the game but why now is it more important than ever to fund ancient studies programs you know so now we've had we, we, we talked about you know all the, the the places we've seen this and to the person who says well i could just watch all these movies and then get a rough idea of what you guys have been talking about so i don't need to study that what would you to say? What would you say to somebody who just said that? Um, the texts that have survived from classical antiquity, with some of these things—the Virgil, the Homer, the Plato—the have survived because people, century after century, have found those versions still relevant and worth retelling. Right? The movies. I mean, I love Rick Riordan's stuff, but I don't think that people will be reading it two hundred years from now. Um, and, you know, because it's, it, it hits our moment, um, and it, it, it does it effectively, but, but it's, it's not meant to be, um, something that as, as Thucydides calls it a temae sae, a possession for all time. Um, so, right. I mean, and one of the reasons that people have come back to Virgil and Plato and Homer is because they found those things, fresh inspirations for them to think with again and again and again. They're really good. There was a lot of stuff from classical antiquity that wasn't all that great, that wasn't all that memorable, that didn't survive. Now, some of the stuff that was really good probably also didn't survive. Um, and then there's some stuff that is not all that great that does survive. But right, I mean, one of the reasons for class to, to for people to continue to read the text from classical antiquity and to continue to read the works of English literature or to continue to read the works of French literature or German literature or Italian lit, right? I mean, any of these humanities departments is that human cultures produce expressions that speak across cultural boundaries, that speak across time, that allow us to think about 
complex human situations in very fruitful and new ways, right? The horror movie genre, yeah, there'll be tropes that are recycled, but it's not, you know, really meant to be fruitful ground for thinking about deep issues of how do I deal with the death of a loved one, right? <laughs> um, so we always do have these times when we need to think about life and death, about good and evil, about, you know, how does human society work and how does it fail? Um, and that's what humanities is about, is thinking about those human issues. Um, and so we can't, if we don't think deeply about them, then we will only think in shallow ways. And thinking in shallow ways leads to really, really bad outcomes. Um, you know, I do think of, you know, one of the examples I think of always is the case in Flint, Michigan, um, where uh, very well-trained scientists weren't able to think outside the metrics that they had devised and think about humans, right? And we need to always be able to think about the complexities. Um, what science is good for is reducing the variables and getting very precise answers. And there are times when we have to have that. But when the world gets complicated, and it certainly <laughs> is complicated now, humanities is what we need to be able to think outside and one thing one barrier that i really came up against when i was in college was um that worry of going to my advisor and saying i love this stuff i realize that it can make me a really extremely good critical thinker it can make me smarter i can just have a self-awareness about human issues that's that's all well and good and great how am I going to get a job? How am I going to be able to take these skills and go into life? And what if I don't continue on um, in classics? What mm -hmm. good does that do me if I can think amazingly about the world? Um, but if I'm poor and have no future prospects, you know, it's a waste of time. Right. Except it, I would say it's never a waste of time to be able to think critically and that, you know, to be able to think critically, write critically, read critically um, is vital for anything that you try to do. You know, we have classics majors who go on to be doctors and who say being a classics major has made me a better doctor because I think about human problems in complex ways, as well as know what to, right, what to inject them with. Um, you know, being a lawyer, being able to read critically, working in um, a, a nonprofit or working in a, a public policy. Um, I, I have one student who will always remain dear to my heart, wrote a brilliant senior essay on funeral rituals in the Iliad. Um, and went on to work on um, in uh, low-income housing um, energy efficiency standards, right? Why was she good at her job? Because she could pick up anything, read it, make sense of it, and figure out how to move on from there, right? And so it, it really becomes a question of where do you turn your focus and attention? 
And then how do you take those skills that you've learned in, you know, analyzing a classical text in, you know, coming up with a theory, a, a hypothesis and arguing its complexities in an, an analytical paper, how do you take those talents and, and you know, turn them to, to, to productive work? You know, how do you get a job? Well, how you get a job in anything, right? You find an opening, you make the case that you're the best person to, to do it. And there's where the writing skills come in. There's where the communication skills come in. Um, and, you know, employers actually frequently say, we love humanities majors because they know how to write, they know how to communicate, they know how to analyze a complex problem. Um, we can train them in this computer system or that computer system or this technical thing or that technical thing, but we need somebody who's able to think and communicate. So that's, that's my answer when parents say, so my daughter has now decided to become a classics major. Why did you do this to her? Um, like, it wasn't me. She was choosing this. And there are good reasons. Oh, my goodness. I, I think it would be both fun, but so frustrating to have to have these discussions repeatedly with scared parents who think my child will be poor if you let her do this or if she chooses to do this. So please talk her out of it when, of course, the answer is going to be, of course not. I'm not going to talk you out of this. You should. You should be a classics major or at least add it as a double major. Please. It's it's yeah. good for you and it's good well, for society. And, you know, it's a it's a it's a longstanding problem. It's not like this is just our our world. Our, you know, one of the most compelling and sort of hard hitting cases is articulated in Plato's Gorgias, where the interlocutor Callicles says to Socrates, you know, Socrates, this sort of clever arguing and standing around on the corner debating about, you know, this philosophical stuff. It's very cute when adolescents do it, but when an adult does it, it's like a person who carries their lisp into adulthood. It's really, why don't you be a man and like do something useful for society, right? So this is, this is a good, this is a critique that's articulated in the fifth century, fourth century BCE by somebody who's arguing passionately against it, right? Plato is setting this up so that he can address it just like every classics professor is always saying, so no, there is a reason <laughs> for you to, to do this. So it's not like we're, this is a new argument. We, it's an argument that, uh, people have been making for 2,500 years and more, I'm sure. And I'm sure it'll go on for uh, years longer because everything these days needs some kind of either monetary value behind it or, or something greater than just you'll have really smart, well-read people who can communicate right, and well. you can make the monetary argument you can say a degree in humanities will give you you know over the lifetime will give you this much more income and you know studies have shown that but people want the immediate sort of i want to see exactly what happens two years after graduation like yeah that's another thing with classics we right, we, we tend to take the long-term perspective um well, I mean, we're all about short-term gratification Absolutely. in this society. 
Uh, and, and it's really funny. Maybe it's because we have the benefit of, we study long periods of time, almost unimaginably ancient. So our, our, concept or perception of time is a little different where I say, okay, if I don't see an immediate dollar payoff now versus 20 years from now, I'll be sitting pretty because maybe I'll have gotten something versus, oh, no, 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 you need to be an investment banker two years after college and you need to be making six or seven figures. Uh-huh. It's it's completely warped. And I'm sure a lot of that has to do with just the way modern society works and runs and how we're a society that I just, I keep thinking it's all based on, well, the early bird gets the worm. So you need to be the early bird to get the job, the, this, the that. And I'm like, well, the long game really is great. You should try it. You just don't want to because right. I mean, you get nervous. Going, yeah, going back to, you know, being raised by a storyteller and an econometrician, right? The econometrician also tells me that the long term is actually what matters, right? The, if you calculate the benefits over the extended haul, mathematically, analytically, it also pays off. So, you know, it, 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 it goes both, it, it, it cuts on both sides. The only problem is now we have to, you know, uh, beg and, and just describe, find a way to describe that in a concise method that makes sense to a bunch of politicians who are kind of all about how do we build our workforce how do we get money right away into our economy no 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 your election cycle yes right i mean that's absolutely right um and you know admit you know university administrators and politicians right are being held accountable on in the short term so it's hard for them to be able to say, well, long-term, this will be better, even if I won't be around, <laughs> right? So. Uh-huh. We, we rarely like to think about things that uh, will affect other people because we're dead. Um, unfor- unfortunately, that's just the nature of things. Um, and in terms of timeless things, things that were written to be read uh, 2,000 years from now, uh, at the end of the podcast, I ask each guest to read Percy Shelley's Ozymandias because it's my favorite poem of all time. And I do find it it is one of those timeless things that I would sincerely hope people are reading 2,000 years from now. So if you could read the poem for us and then just give me your thoughts on, you know, what does this poem, does it speak to you in any way? What is What thoughts does it evoke? Obviously, this is a, a really complex um, poem, so I don't expect you to have, like, the most in-depth analysis ever. Yeah. Uh, that's impossible to ask. But just to give people an idea of, you know, how does your brain work? How does it interpret it? this way. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Um, okay, let's see. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. It is, it is such a beautiful, I mean, you know, just the crafting of it, um, you know, the sounds and, and all of that. Um, I mean, and it's, it, there are so many different levels you can play with on that. Um, thinking about the wreck of empires, hubris, and the, you know, um, the vanity of, of those who believe that um, what they do is so important that it will be remembered forever. Um, as I was looking back over it before coming here, I was thinking of, of some other things, though, which I hadn't really um, thought about in, in times when I had read this before. And thinking of, of um, the frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command and the passions that are writ on the stone that represent a person in unimaginably far back, right? And thinking again of, you know, in thinking about the usefulness of humanities and the usefulness of artistic representations, whether it's literary like Shelley's or artistic like the sculptor he's talking about, it gives us an insight into people. What were their passions? Who were these people? What were they like, right? Um, can they still speak to us across, across the ages, right? And that a sneer on the face of a statue that has tumbled down into obscurity and nothingness 
still conveys a sense of familiarity of I know I know people like that, right? <laughs> that I there are there right that that, that this so that the 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 speaking across all of those centuries, despite the decay and the destruction, um, I think that's that's a that was a new sort of thing that I I got out of it as I was was thinking about it, um, reading it this time around, um, which is uh, which is kind of in this context, which is kind of fun. Um, I like that. I love that perspective. I have not heard that one before. I mean, this idea that we are talking about, well, one, Shelley wrote it comparatively not that long ago. But very recently. <laughs> <laughs> very recently, comparatively. But when thinking about the original Ozymandias, who was that? Okay, when we say, uh, we say, okay, that's Ramesses II. When did he live? Oh, you know, in the 1000 BCE. Okay, how long ago was that? A very, very long A time very, ago. very, very long time ago. And the idea of relatability connecting us to them all like thousands and thousands of years ago that's incredible um because most people they say oh it's just it's some metaphor for political power the ethereal nature of, of hubris and human pride and all that stuff i think that's all there um, and it certainly is but i never had analyzed or stopped to think about how well one of the reasons i think that it does remain so relevant that it is popular in the way that you know we would read a homer or virgil is hey, I can see reflections of what I'm going through, of what I know, of what I feel experience in this poem, whether it's a short 14 line sonnet, the way this one is. So it's nice, short and sweet, but you still, it evokes that emotion and you get that, that and you say, or an epic poem on the scale of the Iliad or the Odyssey, mm -hmm. a little longer, but it still evokes these, this, these same feelings. So I think that's incredibly powerful and, I'm going to take something incredibly new from that now. Um, I, I really like that. Um, and, and one of the, it was a previous guest who first brought it up, but I, I loved it so much that I'm taking it now because it's, it's a fantastic way of thinking of it is a, it's a memento mori. And I yep. love that. And I just, I hadn't thought of that um, and until my guest brought it up, but uh, yeah, that you know, 2,500, 3,000 years from now, what is going to survive of, of us, of our culture, you know, um, what will be remembered? Um, it's hard to think of symbols now that could be applied to sort of a, a modern day or futuristic Ozymandias, but I was actually just watching Planet of the Apes the other night, I will admit, and I was thinking, <laughs> well, Yes, I know they use the iconic Statue of Liberty, but I was thinking in light of all the political stuff that's happening, the Capitol. What if we see just the dome of the Capitol enveloped in probably not sand, we're not in the desert, but uh, some sort of naturally occurring disaster, rubble, mm -hmm. dirt, whatever, and you just see the top of the Capitol building. Um, and then you wonder, this must have been a huge building. Who worked here? Who built this? What, what did this symbolize? Um, so Why that's they very spend all of this time and resource creating something like this. What did it mean to them? Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's a very futuristic one. I mean, I suppose if I was asked to pinpoint, like, what is a, a contemporary one that I can remember thing that has become like an Ozymandias? And I'd say um, an abandoned casino in Atlantic City. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe. I don't, I don't know. There's, there's a billion ones I could probably come up yeah. with. Um, but, yeah. I mean, it, all of the, 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 I mean, in, in terms of, you know, human vanities and, um, you know, thinking uh, uh, of self-importance, but, you know, thinking of, of things that represent the past and that, that are then, then ruined, um, you know, what will Notre Dame be like, um, right, in a couple hundred years now after having survived for so many hundred years before? Um, with just the fire yeah that's an incredible question that i had not thought about because i just i think of notre dame as just it's this church that's gonna stand for Forever. another couple hundred years i mean yeah. it survived how many revolutions and this that and the other thing and it's still here and um you know what more could we possibly do to it <laughs> that it that it can't survive through so those are all excellent questions and then when um, we ask that question we immediately start thinking of answers which are very disturbing so yeah. Yeah. So I, some things I've learned, especially through being a classist, there are some things that are better pondered, but never answered, um, at least not yet. Yeah. Uh, so I want to have a little fun, right? As the last thing, because our great discussion just sparked it. Um, we obviously share a love of stories and myths and all that. So are there any folktale mythological or even real historical people if you could have a conversation if you could meet any three who would they be and why oh that's so hard <laughs> um <laughs> um i mean i do think i would want to meet plato um just as somebody to 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 speak with um and on the far other end, I would have loved to have a conversation with J.R.R. Tolkien and talk about stories. Um, and who to put in. Um, there's a wonderful work that, that um, I read. It was called Van Loan's Lives. Is this, the conceit of it is that this guy and his friend figured out a way to invite historical personages to dinner. And so they have this fun pairing historical personages and um, and devising menus to to entertain them in this and sort of trying to imagine who, if you had Tolkien and Plato, who would you? Van Loan puts Plato with Confucius, which is an interesting sort of um, fun uh, fun thing. Um, maybe somebody like Voltaire. Um, you know, just sort of thinking, you know, of, of, of fun and interesting people, but that's hard. That's hard. I mean, would I take an artist like Da Vinci or, yeah. Um, that's like the one question I've learned. You could never really <laughs> ask a classicist or ancient historian because they will want to pick out 5 million people. Oh yeah. All right. I mean, 
I hate, I, I love asking it because I hate being asked that question myself. But So have you devised an answer now that you've asked this so many times? Um, yes and no, because I feel like, I feel like for the most part, I can say one or two, but then it's always that last one where you're forced to choose who would be the final person that I, I've, I've narrowed it down to, I have like a list of like five people so I can input one based on whatever I'm feeling at the moment, which doesn't really actually answer the question because you can only choose three, right. but um, yeah, I honestly, I will always say Akhenaten because I'm so interested. I, when I first got into oh, the ancient thing. field, I wanted to be an <laughs> Egyptologist. That was my thing. I thought I was going to become the next Karakuni. I was going to be the next big thing. That didn't happen, but that's okay because I still read a lot of um, Egyptological literature. So I can be my own armchair uh, literary Egyptologist, but Akhenaten always because the religion aspect, the were you just certifiably insane aspect. Um, it's I don't know if it's it's popular or or not these days just because I don't know I I usually say I'd love to actually talk to Alexander the Great and just be like why why did you continue you have the biggest empire ever just stay home and rule and then or pick an heir at least and then go off and die like you could have done the world so many favors and then usually I I stick with um my Greek hero um Themistocles because I'm just mm -hmm. I I don't even know why or when I picked up this love of him I was probably halfway through college but when I just read about the battle of Salamis and I heard he's the greatest naval commander ever I just said I like you a lot I, and then I think it was I, I watched 300 the the sequel uh -huh. and I saw him portrayed so horribly that I just said oh <gasps> I was like, don't, you're, you're stabbing me repeatedly in the heart. I hate this. So then I made every attempt to read up everything I could to get a more accurate portrayal of him. And the more I learned, the more I loved. And now I'm, he's, he's my boy. I love him. I just, I, one day I aspire, I'm like, I'm going to write a movie or a mini series for HBO or something Optimistic. about him because I want to do him justice. Interesting. So, I'm, I mean, you know, the, the best portraits, of course, are in Plutarch and Herodotus, um, and um, which makes me think about Alexander the Great. Did you ever read the novels of Mary Renault? Um, the, the one she did on Alexander of uh, Fire from Heaven, the Persian boy. She's a historical novelist and she takes Plutarch as her main source. And so, and she loves these kind of sort of fascinatingly complex characters. And, you know, she has her own answers to some of the questions you, you, you would ask, but, um, uh, you know, that kind of a, of a novel about Themistocles would be fascinating. You know, she does ones on Alexander, on Alcibiades, on, um, Hipparchus uh, of 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 at the tyrant of at in in at of the Pisistratids in Athens. Um, so she, she it's an interesting set of historical novels. Um, the Alexander ones are probably the best, but um, it's funny that you mention that because if if I'm not 
talking about either Themistocles or Alexander, Pisistratus, the tyrant of Athens, is always the fourth person on my list because I just want to meet someone who had the balls to dress some woman up as a goddess and then parade her through the streets of Athens and be like, this is why I should be tyrant. The gods have ordained it when literally, I'm like, how many people were sitting there being like, that's obviously not the goddess. That's just some woman he dressed up. But hey, you've got balls, so sure you right. can be tired. Mean, you've got the you've got the right patriotic sentiment. So to go on through with it, in um in one of her novels, the um the uh it's called the Praise Singer, and the narrator is actually the poet Simonides. Um, and so he goes. He meets, you know, he he's at the court of of the Pisistratids with Pisistratus and then Hippias and Hipparchus afterwards, um, uh, as as well as in Samos um, with Polycrates. This it, it, she she recreates things neatly and she gives an interesting portrait of Pisistratus um, in that she doesn't really answer the 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 whole. Um, the the whole thing about Fie in in and in the chariot, but but well, I I have not read any of her work, but now I need to absolutely go find it because it sounds fantastic. It's kind of fun um, stuff, and she she knows her Plutarch really well. You know any faults that Plutarch has as a historian, she's of course using as well, but it makes good stories. Ooh, okay, now I need to check <laughs> this out because I love anything that's a good story, um, but. I loved your answers and I wanted to thank you again for joining me, Dr. Edmonds, on this fine day because this was an extraordinarily fun uh, conversation. Uh, It's not very often that I get to talk to someone who loves stories as much as I do in in this specific context. So uh, it was was a pleasure. Well, thank you very much. And um, I look forward to seeing, you know, what what, what comes of all of your work here. I think this is a a really great endeavor to um, bring the fun stories that we both enjoy to to more people. I totally agree. Trireme Transit is now departing Ancient Odyssey. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, near them on the sand. Half-sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of kings, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 